Thank you so much for your precious time. This is the Critical Care Commute podcast, where we talk to the widest range of experts relevant to acute care medicine. This is Peter Brindley, a critical care physician, somewhat opinionated, hopefully just the right side of provocative professor at the University of Alberta Hospital. And I'm Leon Baker, uh, the unlikely introverted podcaster and critical care physician working out in the community in Edmonton, Canada. By the way, you can claim continuous professional development points for these. Uh, Go check out your local college's website. Step-by-step instructions for the Canadians on the website. so much for joining the Critical Care Commute podcast, Peter and Leon from Edmonton, Alberta to Critical Care Docs. You know that story. We always thank you for your time and uh, I- I'm not even sure we need to on this one. We have such a fabulous guest. We are flustered, as you can hear, honored, delighted. Dame Sally Davies, uh, we're, we're slowly learning the British honorifics, but Dame Commander, uh, listed as the most influential woman in the NHS, my goodness me, God bless Wiki, uh, started out as a consultant hematologist, an expert in hemoglobinopathies, particularly in sickle cell, but that would be enough for you and I, became the chief scientific advisor to the Department of Health up until 2016, the UK's chief medical officer, my goodness me, for American listeners, that's like the surgeon in general plus 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 until 2019 you can see i'm out of breath is now the uk special envoy in antimicrobial resistance is the author of the drugs don't work fantastic title and um you know what that's a, that's enough i mean is the master of trinity college cambridge etc 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 dame sally davis thank you so much your schedule is ludicrously full and to find time for two country mice in alberta is greatly appreciated nice to talk to you both thank you oh you're, you're extremely kind let's just dive into this these are some of the quotes I found antimicrobial resistance could portend the end of modern medicine, could put us back 40 to 50 years. The cupboards are bare, quote unquote. We People are exhibiting antibiotic abuse, a really good quote. I don't know whether that's yours or borrowed, or but let's all take it to heart. There are already about 700,000 annual deaths. It could rise to 10 million. It's so bad that it's on the UK risk registry, namely antimicrobial resistance, alongside pandemics, alongside bioterrorism. It could actually cost the world's economy almost exactly the same as the UK's economy. In other words, uh, $100 trillion. I sound like Dr. Evil throwing out these numbers Um, and could throw back medicine half a century (laughs) with the state of, uh, with the risk of uh, not getting my words right. This is a massive issue if people didn't realize. True. So just think about everyday life. And I put it to you that antibiotics and other anti-infectives from critical care, you'll know the importance of antifungals and antivirals as well, but the emergency at the moment is antibiotics. Just imagine running a health system without them. They're global goods. They are infrastructure for any health system, whether it's a very poor health system or a really rich one like you and we have that that does a good job with lots of intensive care rescuing people. So yes, if resistance to the present antibiotics and treatments keeps rising as it is, we do risk losing modern medicine. 
Imagine replacement joints, transplants, cancer treatment without antibiotics. And the pipeline's empty. The last new um, family of antibiotics that came into routine clinical use were discovered in the last century. And penicillin itself, well, as we know, it's coming up for 100 years in this decade that it was discovered. So I don't think it's an underestimation to say if we don't amend our ways and do something about it, this silent, creeping pandemic is going to destroy modern medicine and take us back to a kind of apocalyptic era. And the WHO reckoned that antibiotics gave us an extra 20 years of life on average each. But to think that modern cancer treatments will be kind of a lottery. Well, I can probably cure your cancer, but hey, uh, you'll get an infection and I quite likely won't be able to cure that. One in five cancer patients has a serious infection, taking them into hospital and often dying of it. If you haven't got the drugs to treat it, then what's going to happen? It's complex because it's about us abusing antibiotics, but actually it's also about clever bacteria who can be our friends in our microbiome, but can be our enemies when they give us infectious diseases. It's complex because it's about health security, but it's also food security. Antibiotics are used more in the food chain than in humans. Um, and much of the time, they're not used for veterinary purposes. So that's a problem. And then think about the amount of antibiotics in the environment and the impact that can have, both from release from manufacturing, but also, of course, peed and pooed out from animals, whether it's humans or pigs or um, vertical farming in um in China, which has, you know, the pigs at the top peeing and pooing on chickens who then pee and poo on, on uh, shellfish who pee and poo on, on um, fish. So, you know, it's, it's a pretty horrid picture, that, isn't it? If this is a big problem. It is causing at the moment at least 1.3 million deaths a year. It's the third most important underlying cause of death, according to the Global Burden of Disease. And it is going up. And of course, it's much worse in low and middle income countries. So I'm sure you've all come across it in ITU and you all worry about it, but I'm worrying with you. Well, what a fantastic start. Um, I, I think it's appropriate that we've used the word poop already, so I'll use it again, We that we scare the poop out of people because I, I just took over the ICU this morning and People understand this on a theoretical level, but I still took over patients this morning with the sort of byline of, and he might have aspirated overnight, so he was therefore put on broad-spectrum antibiotics. You know, we understand it on a level until it's 2 o'clock in the morning, and we feel our job is just to keep the patient going until 8 o'clock in the morning. And so, you know, if I may, I'll pick up on many of the points you, you made and sort of almost double down on them. There's only a couple of companies developing antibiotics, and, and bravo to them. My understanding is they, they might make a few million, but to develop an antibiotic could take a few billion. On an evolutionary scale, you know, you and I as humans, we walk or crawl, and the, the bugs, I don't know, rip. They fly. They, 
they speed. Um, a quarter of all prescriptions supposedly are unnecessary, but half the world still gets their antibiotics without a prescription. After watching a lecture you did online, I, I tried to perform the act of could I order broad spectrum antibiotics online myself? Yep, absolutely no problem. So we're defining the problem. Are we at the point yet where we can define the solution or, or are we still mired in social, cultural, economic concerns? I fear we're mired, so you were right on everything you said. Oh dear. And, of course, one of my reasons for battling about this and trying to raise awareness and get some action is because I want there to be functioning antibiotics and anti-infectives for when we need them, which is often in ITU. It's not that I don't want people to use antibiotics. I want effective, quality, working antibiotics when they're needed. But a lot of it's behavioral. Why is it that in the community uh, it's quite easy to get antibiotics in many countries, either from a, you know, a market stall in a low-income country, and then they're often um, counterfeit or, or falsified, so they have a little bit of antibiotic but not a full amount. That drives resistance. Why is it that our own primary care Doctors, though they've improved, still look as if they prescribe 20 to 25% more than are needed. Why is it that we can't persuade drug companies to look after their other lines of drugs? I mean, the number of drug companies that have stopped making them. Yes, they don't make a profit, but actually, don't they want to protect their cancer drugs? And many of them are free, free riding on the few companies, Shionogi, GSK, Merck, who, um, Pfizer, who are still producing antibiotics. And that's wrong. They all need to be in this. We've been trying in Britain, and Canada has said it's going to join in what's called a pull incentive. So related to our GDP, we will pay for novel antibiotics uh, based not only on the impact on an individual, but the impact on society at large. And if all the G7, the rich countries, moved into pool um, incentives like that, we would pay enough for companies to make new antibiotics, to develop them, research, develop them, and make them. Sure, they wouldn't make a big profit, but then they could make them available on tiered pricing to low-income countries. But at the moment... We're having problems persuading other countries to join in. As I say, thank you, Canada, for announcing you're going to. Well, hold them, hold them to it, Dame Sally. Uh, this this country is is wonderful with proclamations and, and less so with delivery. So let's let's see them deliver on it. I've heard some very clever ideas of, as you say, group funding rather than just relying on industry, either startups or big pharma. I mean, I mean, both groups have tried, failed, splattered on the way forward. So it is likely, presumably, time for tax dollars from all of those nations to follow. I've, I've heard of almost like a Netflix subscription where countries pay for um, access to the antibiotic sort of ahead of time uh, and then take it as needed, <laughs> I guess, like any prescription. But but let's let's go back. I mean, some of your lectures are so powerful because you present cases back in the 1930s and the 1940s. For example, a child biting 
the inside of their cheek and becoming deathly, deathly ill because of it in a, in a way that you and I almost couldn't imagine, but perhaps will have to reimagine. And then children being put outside, a la the sort of sanitarium model, because the best we could offer them was sunshine and good air. Uh, how, how do we get it right? How do we really hammer home that this is big ticket stuff that we really need to focus on at the same time as almost like climate change, not putting people off to the point that it, it seems incurable and impossible? Um, if I really knew the answer to that, I'd have done it. So <laughs> I started, because I'm very intellectual, on the data approach. And that has some impact, but not enough. So then I thought we'd look at it from the economic perspective. And actually, Canada's done some really nice on the economic, nice work on the economic perspective, showing it's impacting your GDP already. We right. did um, uh, a couple of studies showing a really big impact. So investing in new antibiotics, infection prevention and control, all of that becomes really a great return on uh, investment. You know, we've shown it, but that isn't working. And so now I continue all of that, but I do begin to highlight that at some point this gets personal. And for me, it got personal about 14 months ago when my goddaughter died of an untreatable infection, age 38. And it is beginning to come home to people. And I think that may be the only way we're going to move forward. If you look at climate, people are saying, ah, so it's not just it's getting hot. We're getting all these extreme events, and I suffer from extreme events. I can see it. So maybe as it gets more personal, we're going to um, move forward. I think that's a, that's a very good point and, and huge sympathies for your goddaughter. That's absolutely tragic. You know, in terms of the resistance, we've, we've said evolutionarily, you and I crawl and the bugs race. You know, the resistance is especially we're seeing to our gram negatives, our Enterobacteriaceae, our Pseudomonas. The bug can stop the antibiotic getting in through the porons, stopping them from binding. They can't last because of beta lactamases. They can't remain because there are efflux pumps pushing the things out. You know, these are, these are remarkable, remarkable examples of evolution. You almost end up thinking these bugs are sentient, how clever they are. The carbapenem resistance, the colistin resistance, the the, the MCR1s and the MCR2s. I, I've heard examples of sports teams going overseas and, and not necessarily coming back sick, but coming back with with resistance. So this is true, right, Dame Sally? It, this it is, is, and it's horrible, and people need to understand how serious it is. And so people go abroad. There was a nice Swedish study of back, young backpackers who had clean guts when they left. And when they got back, 90% of them had E. coli and other bugs in their guts with resistant genes. And of course, over six to 12 months, they disappear. But if you happen to get septicemia or you've got cancer or you're a woman prone to urinary tract infections, the infection most often comes from your own gut. And there you are with resistant genes in your gut that you've picked up in India or some other part of Asia, for instance, or Latin America, which, you know, could kill you off. It's a very worrying position, so we need to make sure we support infection prevention and control vaccination programs, 
And maybe we're going to end up not just with new antibiotics when people wake up to the problem, but also with cocktails of phage for you to use in ITUs and things. We're going to have, I know that some companies are beginning to look at monoclonals for you to use in ITUs. So there's something about what do we do when people are just a bit sick and make sure we use the right treatment at the right time, the right dose for the right length of time. And then there's something about novel treatments as well for really sick patients. And are we going to need an E. coli vaccination that anyone who's having a joint replacement or might have a cesarean section, they get a vaccine before, you know, before the op. I think we're going to have to think quite differently about this as we go forward. Well, it sounds like we're segueing into where do we go from here. So, You've, you've talked about some of the, the novel ideas, the, the repopulation, as I uh, heard it referred to. Um, I've become a huge follower of Ed Young, the, the gentleman who wrote I Can Contain Multitudes and the sort of beginner's guide to the microbiome, where he started talking about the idea that we need to be park rangers and manage the ecosystem of the body's microbiome rather than you know seeing ourselves as carpet bombers trying to uh, take out every bug we can. This recalcitrant carnivore is starting to wonder another reason for getting off a meat diet might be the horrendous widespread use of antibiotics in, uh, can I even call it animal husbandry? I'm told most of You can, but they don't need to do that. So if you look at Purdue poultry in the States with two vaccines, one robotically done, it's great for watching, robotically done in all the eggs, and then a second bright crimson red sprayed over newborn chickens, newly hatched ones, they don't use antibiotics. So, you know, it's animal husbandry, well done with biosecurity, which means infection prevention and control to you and me, can do it without all these antibiotics. Well, that's exactly why I hesitated before saying animal husbandry, because they're not necessarily giving them to animals that are even sick. They're just trying to maintain the yield, quote unquote. Um, seems like a horrendous misuse of antibiotics. People are looking at insects. People are looking at metals. People are looking at bacteriophages. People are looking at molds. I mean, obviously, penicillin's a fungus, for goodness sake, even to begin with. A combination of all of the above, I presume, but but presumably we need a, a massive injection of excitement, interest, money, political will to see this as a priority, not just a fringe thing that a couple of scientists might do off the corner of their desks. True. Um, maybe I can stop being seen as a slightly mad woman for dry, talking about it so much, drooling on, I was going to say. I mean, I do this because I care and people die. And now I've got the push of it being personal. I'm not paid to do it, but someone's got to raise attention and get you lot pushing everyone around you. We all need champions of this. So please keep going. Well, I, I will keep going. I mean, I wonder if the way this is going to become personal to healthcare workers is who knows what's up our noses in our earlobes and let's, let's get even more personal inside our bowels. You know, next time I need antibiotics in the system, I desperately need something that will work. Now, I've been to enough lectures where, you know, a couple of little platitudes, a couple of little bromides, oh, you just need a local antibiotogram in your hospital so that you know what works and what doesn't, and you need to wash your hands, folks, you terrible doctors. Good start. 
Yeah. Yeah, well, that's a good start. Exactly. Let's talk about washing hands for a second. My understanding is as doctors, we do it for six seconds or less. We're looking at at least 20 seconds or more. True. Um, I remember doing a lecture at the um, uh, in London, and what we did was uh, we did talk to the ethics committee. We put a young woman in the women's and a young man in the men's, and they um, timed people washing their hands. And they were coming to a talk about antimicrobial resistance, and it was only about 10% who washed their hands properly. I like that old far side cartoon where the gentleman's walking out of the washroom and there's a big alarm flashing saying did not wash hands long enough maybe that's maybe that's what we need going forward leon i um i feel very passionate about this topic and i'm i'm worried i'll be honest with you uh i'm gonna just catch my breath and hand this over to you for a second yeah you bet you know, I've, I've, I'm often very privileged just to sit back and, and listen to the conversation between Peter and uh, our, our luminary guest here. And surely this is, this has been another one of those, those podcasts. We've, we've covered most of the questions that I've had. Um, I, I will, I will perhaps just bring it a little bit closer to boots on the ground, uh, if you will. So in, in the ITUs, you know, I, uh, I often, um, admit patients and I often receive admitted patients from overnight that was perhaps admitted with uh, let's say respiratory failure of an uncertain etiology but they almost always are on antibiotics and probably rightly so um, they then proceed to remain on antibiotics for until culture negative, which may take 48 hours, 72 hours, perhaps longer. And, and Dame Sally, I, I saw your face when I, when I mentioned the time period. So I'm wondering, boots on the ground, what, how would you suggest we go about that particular problem, those patients? Because I think, let's be honest, uh, you know, common things being common, a lot of the times we do deal with horrific infections uh, on the ITU. You do. And as I said earlier, I want the antibiotics to be there when you need them in ITU and other places in the hospital. So I, I understand starting on broad spectrum, but then go narrow or stop as soon as you can. So there is a conversation to be had with your microbiologist. How quickly can you grow them? How quickly can you tell us, are you going to move into doing gene um, assays to see whether you can pick up a bug, you can pick up resistance very quickly. So are they using the speediest, most modern ways of doing it? But yes, you will give antibiotics that in retrospect, we wish you hadn't, but you still have to do it because you can't always sort out which one needs them. So I, I have every sympathy. The clinician at the end of the day has to do what they think is best. You know, and to that, I've, I've in my short critical care career, I've, I've seen a shift from very broad spectrum antibiotics to even broader spectrum mm -hmm. antibiotics. And, and, and typically, and, and sorry for using, you know, proprietary or market names, I guess, but from Tazobactam to meropenem, for instance, within, within three, four years empirically, um, how do we how do we address that? Because there's a there's a big fear that that we're missing that that resistant organism. So I do think that's where your microbiologists come in. Sit down as an ITU, look at the last year of infections, watch your antibiogram, what will do the right thing for the patient, but actually protect 
uh, third, fourth line antibiotics so that they're there if you really need them rather than going in heavy when you didn't need to. Um, but we all have to work together and look at the results and decide what's the right thing. And it will vary from hospital to hospital. Well, with that, um, if I may, I'd like to pivot back to the food industry quickly. Um, I've, I've heard some horrific stories about the food industry, and, and Peter alluded to some of it, I guess. Um, but half of it's perhaps inappropriate, 80%, 90%, all of it. How do we address that? You know, um, And I, I'm not just talking about giving antibiotics to, to, to animals, but also placing antibiotics, which I've heard about in, in certain food products like eggs, for instance, to, to prolong their shelf life. So um, we should not be offered anything to eat that has antibiotic residues in it. But as we know, they wash out quite quickly. So how do we move away from non-veterinary use? I mean, I've, I've learned that sick animals need treatment. But I think part of the problem is that uh, we, we treat all of farming as one and the same thing. And we have intensive farmers, and they need to stop it. And then we have small farmers, and we want to reduce their use. But that's a much more complicated issue because it involves culture and everything like that. So I really want to start with the intensive farmers, the big farmers, the fast food restaurants, people like that, and get them stopping using growth promotion and critically important, and then move to the smaller ones very slowly and steadily. You should not be able to buy food for any animal that has antibiotics mixed in it. So there are simple things we need to do. Stop growth promotion, stop the use of uh, critically important medical antibiotics, stop selling feed with antibiotics in it. But I mean, fish farming is the same, except for salmon and trout in Norway and Scotland. They just tip antibiotics into the water. And this has to stop. And that needs regulation. Or it needs those companies, and some of them have, to wake up to the fact this is not good and that actually consumers don't want that. So I also work with um, investors, getting them to think about guidelines for investment so that they start saying to big companies, if you do that, we will remove our investments. Our students here in Trinity College do activist investment. So they've been to the McDonald's annual general meeting and tabled a resolution saying they have to um, explain what they're doing on the use of antibiotics in beef burgers and they should reduce it. So there are a lot of actions we can take but we should not shy away from it. We've got to keep pushing. I'm going to jump back in. I'm, I'm loving, I'm loving the, uh, we've, we've all got our, our fists slightly clenched and our thumbs up <laughs> in the air. We're, we're getting there. Uh, what about vaccination? You know, pneumococcal vaccinations, great way to not need the antibiotic. Influenza vaccinations, great way to not get the super infection. I don't feel like we're getting that message out there. It's it's still seen as a vaccination is for you, 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 and you alone instead of a, a sort of more community-minded approach. Is, is that fair or am I just going to... I absolutely agree. I spent the morning discussing this with an expert on vaccines because he and I are hosting a meeting at our uh, British Royal Society on exactly that in April. How do we get 
our vaccine programs scaled up and effective? And what once we as well, once or as we do that, how do we develop new vaccines to protect our antibiotics as well as our patients? I feel like we've taken more than enough of your time, but the topic definitely deserves it, and, and your presence has been a, a joy. Maybe a sideways question to end things. Um, you've, you've done lots of work on trying to get people to c- cut back a bit on their alcohol consumption, on the obesity epidemic, on junk food. You're, you're laughing, but this, this is incredibly important stuff, and it's sort of leading into my sideways question. I think uh, many of us start out as intensive care doctors because we think we're going to save the world one patient at a time. And we either decide eventually we should have been psychiatrists because so many people's concerns are at a more existential level, or we should have gotten into public health. You were, as I understand it, the first chief scientific advisor, not from a public health environment. Please inspire people listening that they can make a public health contribution, because I think we all want to by the time we get into the second and third uh, decades of our careers. True. I think we all can, too. I mean, my, my experience is that we, we know a lot of public health. We can learn a lot, but we bring different things into public health, an understanding of treating patients, of dealing with patients one by one. And then you start to think at the population, but we mustn't forget those individual patients. But it's been a roller coaster learning it. I've enjoyed it. <laughs> Leon, this guest has been marvelous and deserves a higher level of uh, debate than you and I. Uh, we, should, <laughs> we should leave her in peace and let her get on with her day. But yeah. please, uh, please thank her effusively because I would like to. Oh, Dame Sally, thank you so much for your precious, precious time. We really appreciate it. And, and just this topic really, as Peter said, deserves hours and hours of discussion. But even more, it deserves hours and hours of our attention when we treat patients with boots on the ground. Uh, when we make decisions on food that we buy, all of the above. So I really do thank you for your for your precious time. Hey, and a final shout out, uh, Dame Sally, to your assistant, because my goodness me, that is quite the schedule she has to manage. We're incredibly grateful. I hope she's listening to this and knows the kudos. Thank you. Thank you for the conversation. You're great. And I hope you inspire lots of people to treat antibiotics with respect. The health information offered on the Critical Care Commute podcast and the resources available for download through the podcast and show notes is provided for general informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The opinions expressed by the hosts, guests, or any individuals featured on this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the hosts or their employers.